Welcome to the Engineering Career Conversations. I'm Krista Downey, Director of the Engineering Career Center at Cornell University. And I'm Tracy Nathans-Kelly, Director of the Engineering Communications Program. We are excited to bring you this forum where we will host lively conversations that we hope will inspire you. Nathan Williams earned his bachelor's degree in Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Cornell in 2011 and then went on to get a PhD studying the moon and Mars at Arizona State University in 2016. He now works as a science systems engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California. Our interview with Nathan takes us to Mars and back again, and there's some surprises along the way. We hope you join us. We are happy today to introduce to you to Nathan Williams, who is willing to talk to us about many extraordinary things. Krista had a nice intro conversation with him the other day, but we are really excited to explore all the different ways that Nathan is having a great impact on the world and doing the great work that he does all day long. So welcome. We're so glad that you're with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Well, let's give people a little bit of background. What are you working on right now? Tell us about your current work. Oh, so many things. Uh, <laughs> in general, um, yes, I'm working at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, with NASA and Caltech uh, in Pasadena, California. Um, most of my current work right now is looking at Mars, um, various landing sites, working with uh, Mars rover Perseverance, with the Ingenuity helicopter, uh, Mars sampler turn, and several other missions as well. Uh, but basically, if, um, if it's something related to the Mars surface, uh, especially mapping products and relating science to the engineering, I'm often involved in a lot of those conversations to help facilitate those to make sure that we really get the, uh, the most bang for our buck out of our missions, that we're really getting the greatest science return that we can. Excellent. So Nathan, for someone who might be considering a path like this, can you talk more about what does this look like day to day? So my day Day life is uh, extremely varied. Uh, no two days are ever the same. Uh, in part, that's because I'm on you know, operations and tactically, we get new data down from Mars every day and we're often in a new place. We're seeing uh, new rocks. Uh, we're seeing dust devils that pop up everywhere. Uh, no two days are the same because we're always doing something brand new. And I find that extremely exciting. Uh, same with the helicopter. It's like every single day, uh, we're flying, we're downloading new images from the helicopter. Uh, it's, you never know what you're going to see. And that's part of the thrill of it for me. I think it's so interesting to hear. Of course, it has to be new every day, right? Like that's the joy of working in the sciences and in technology, which is why I like being around and in this space as well. You're never rehashing <laughs> anything old school. Um, and it just seems like the work that you're doing, frankly, is the work of so many like movies, right? And books and things like that. So I think people fantasize a lot or have some misconceptions about how it is or how hard it is. One of the questions we like to ask is, what's the most significant challenge that you have at your work? And I'm like, every day is a challenge for Nathan. <laughs> so t talk us through this, like how you're getting all these exciting new things every day and it's a new challenge. How does that how does that play out during the day? Like, how do you handle new every day? I 
at least for me, the biggest thing is you just got to stay nimble and stay flexible mm -hmm. because at least in, in sort of my, my position, I'm talking to, to scientists, to engineers, often very different backgrounds, different sort of ways of thinking and uh, communicating. And they don't always, uh, they're not always able to talk to each other as efficiently. And me having a, you know, a foot in, in each world, I have a science background, but I also have a bit of an engineering background. I went to the Cornell College of Engineering um, and, you know, pursued much more quantitative, like geophysics um, as a grad student. So I, I, I've been able to build up that sort of rapport with multiple um, team members across different, very diverse teams, and then be able to try to communicate between them. And so it's usually when, like, one of them, uh, like an engineer, comes to me with a question, like, hey, we have this capability, what what can or should we do with it? And me having some broader science knowledge, I can say here are things that might be uh, might be very useful. And I can also then take that to my other science colleagues and then ask them mm -hmm. in a way that they will understand, okay, here's what the engineering constraints are, but here's um, what they want to see if you can do something with and will be useful. So I can take that back to them so that they are actually getting that cross collaboration between them. Yeah. And a lot of that in my day to day, it's, you know, it's listening. It's hearing what they have to say, trying to almost translate that and the exact details of what it is day by day, those are constantly changing. But the communication between uh, different people and different parts of a project, that's critically important. And if the two sides aren't operating on the same level, they're not gonna get as much out of it. But if everybody's talking and working together, it's a lot more effective and we achieve a lot more. Now, Nathan, I think people are going to think that I've got my thumb on the scale here. I do not. I, you got, I teach over the engineering communications program. And I think sometimes people are like, oh, look, they just choose people that sing Tracy's song. Um, <laughs> but you were not prompted at all. <laughs> no, it's 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 true. Yeah. I mean, that that is really how it works. <laughs> and the um, some of the most efficient teams I've seen, I we all communicate with each other. Uh, freely, like we have an idea, we go talk to other people because having that diversity and being able mm -hmm. to communicate across these barriers, it is it's enabling because those barriers uh, you try to break those down and work across them. Well, that's a beautiful, beautiful song that I love to hear every single time. <laughs> it makes my day. I love it. I was thinking about this in terms of yes, students take these courses as an undergraduate. And yes, they're hopefully developing some of these skills along the way in their undergraduate and perhaps graduate careers. What other advice you have about, you know, just for people in general on building, further developing their communication skills in uh, an engineering or scientific environment? One of the bigger things for me is just having a broader context of like try to learn as much as you can about all the different people that you are going to be working with, even not necessarily directly. If you have some broader context, that will that'll really help. And then, you know, just, you know, actually you know, sitting down and chatting with them. sometimes not even officially just having like building up a rapport with these other collaborators, coworkers. Um, you, you get to you pick up a lot of what they are thinking of uh, and how they think through that process. So it doesn't always have to be a strict, rigid, formal thing, but uh, being able to just have simple conversations um, and, and be able to speak on the same level is, it's, it's really key. Uh, writing is also critically important as well. We do a whole lot of technical documentation writing. Um, and so making sure that, that what you write down, sure in a specific 
uh, niche discipline, somebody might be able to understand, but say a scientist comes in and looks at a rover report talking about the in-depth details of like power characteristics, um, they may not be able to understand it if it's extremely technical, but not as broadly accessible. Mm -hmm. So um, trying to have it both both the depth and the detail, but also the accessibility from outside, I think is, it's a tough balancing act and it's never perfect, but uh, it's something that I think is worth striving for and practicing. I'm thinking about also the great impact that graduates and faculty are having in their work. And one of the things we talk about here in the College of Engineering is the idea of our community contributing toward a healthier, more equitable, more sustainable world. And I'd love to hear you talk about how your work contributes in that way. And then as you mentioned collaborators, what people and organizations are important collaborators toward this grand vision that you're working on? Well, to the first point about it, you know, the work that I'm doing and, and NASA more broadly, um, I mean, we're, we're testing a bunch of technologies and things that are you know, at first glance, it might not seem they're very applicable because we're doing this stuff in space. Uh, we're sending, you know, instruments to Mars. Um, however, except a lot of the stuff that we're building and sending, it's taking a lot of research to make them as efficient as possible. We got it. We're extremely limited on mass, on volume, on power. A lot of the stuff that we're sending out there, it needs to be extremely efficient and small because otherwise it's just not feasible to send that stuff because we have such a limited capability to physically launch and, in my case on Mars, land um, materials. So we have to make a lot of adjustments to what we're doing uh, and build to new, te new technologies for that. And NASA has a great track record of, well, it's, it's a government entity and we're funded by the taxpayers. We want to give back. And so uh, the vast majority of the technology that we develop once we develop it, we then present it back to the community and say, here, here's what we did. Here's the documents for how to do that. And we hand that back to you know, just general taxpayer as well as um, you know, commercial industry to say, here, this is what we've been able to accomplish. It's so much more efficient. It's economical. Run with it. And we just give that oh, um, free over. And so like for, uh, for every dollar that like, NASA gets, we end up generating several times more than that in just revenue. It's also helping more broadly because I we're able to build more efficient things. It takes less power, so it's get more out of what what the technology that we have is able to do, and then we're able to just keep moving that that needle forward. Um, in terms of other, you know, equitability, I mean, NASA and JPL, of course, we're always trying to you know promote um, diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, one of the things that I I really like about sort of my job and and sort of the, the approach that we're taking, for me, a lot of the work that I do, it's, it's looking at different perspectives. And this is true both in the literal physical sense as well as you know, diversity of the, of the people on the team and really including everybody in that. So for me, it's like, well, if, if you're saying, say you go for a walk in the woods, you're able to see, okay, there's trees here, there's plants, whatever. Uh, you have a limited perspective just standing there. You look at it from above from aerial or satellite images, you get a completely different view of it. You can see how the trends go across larger areas. You understand a broader context from multiple different angles. And it's the exact same way internally with teams and our dynamics. If we have people with diverse backgrounds coming in from different places, 
uh, different ethnicities, uh, all sorts of different ideas coming in here, as well as just the, you know, um, the experience that everybody have had. It gives us new ideas. We're able to tackle new problems because it's not just a, an isolated group. We're able to include all that together. It's a wonderful way of, of folding in. There's actual tactical reasons to have diverse groups. It's not just a nice thing or, you know, whatever. Of course, it's a nice thing, <laughs> but yeah. it's also very strategic and, and wise uh, for all the reasons that you mentioned there. So I love that. Now, I don't know about you, but I felt very ambushed with the whole AI drop last fall, right? Like I should have known it was coming, but I didn't. And so I, how is AI affecting work? I mean, we've been doing various aspects of automation and AI for yeah. quite some time. Um, on Mars, it's particularly important because there's a, you know, there's a delay in communications just at the speed of light going from Earth to Mars. And that can be from, you know, a few minutes to around 20 plus minutes, uh, depending on where the orbits align. And that's just Mars, never mind the outer planets or, um, or whatnot. So it, I we physically, like when we're flying the helicopter, we can't just like fly it with a joystick. Uh, because if we told it to land, we have to wait minutes until it actually received the signal. So uh, in that case, the helicopter ingenuity that we're flying on Mars right now, it is almost entirely autonomous. We send up a plan. It's like, okay, we want you to you know, fly up to this altitude, um, turn this direction, go at this velocity, go out this many meters, um, stop, land. But in terms of actually implementing that and then responding to the environment, it has to figure out all that on its own mm. and then how to respond based on what it's seeing. And so we've had to develop a lot of... Uh, automation for that and so that's been really enabling because otherwise we couldn't fly and by the time that we would send a signal um that that light time duration is longer than all of our flights have been individually so it, it we've had to do that it hasn't really been an option it's been a requirement um so that that's been really enabling same with the rover it's like now we're able to do a lot more autonomous driving um just over the the past couple of days we we drove something like 250 meters. And uh, that would have been a record for previous missions, but because we have the computational resources available on this rover, we're able to do a lot more automation. It's looking around every couple meters, seeing where the rocks are um, and navigating between and around them. So it's able to do that. The one important caveat I'll add about AI, which, um, which we've run into as well is AI is a powerful tool, but it can also be a little bit dangerous if you uh, aren't constantly checking up on it. The, the big challenge is that, sure, we can run it, we get results, and you can act on those results. But you want to ensure that those results are valid and real and reproducible and reliable. And that requires a lot of testing, not just only in the initial phase when you give it a good data set to train on, and then you look at the initial output, but you need to keep looking at it over time as well to ensure that it's maintaining the same quality of results that you're getting back. If you train it, for example, on like the rover case, uh, try to avoid rocks and you give it a great rock data set and it avoids all these rocks, fantastic. But if you don't train it, train it to like avoid 
uh, sand traps, a bunch of like ripples of sand that the wheels will spin around in. Well, guess where it's going to go? The places that aren't rocky and are full of sand. So you need to be able to iterate through that and keep testing over time to ensure that AI is not directing you in a way that you wouldn't have necessarily thought it trained for. It's actually giving you the results that you want um, over time as well. I mean, if we have a helper, that's fine. But if it's a bad helper, that's worse. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and we did that for landing the 2020 rover as well. We had, um, when, when that came down and landing, we had, um, you know, it would take pictures. It would look at where the rover was, try to figure out where it was on the map, and then direct itself towards a safe landing spot. And uh, I was quite heavily involved in making the maps for that. And we made those ahead of time because we had all these satellite images. And so we detected, we used, AI and automated rock detection algorithm to figure out, okay, here's all these pictures, find where all the rocks are. And we just let it run and gave us look like, you know, relatively decent results. But when you look into the fine details, it was also both missing rocks and saying there were rocks in places that there weren't actually. Mm -hmm. So we had to go through and manually verify and validate those maps. And that required looking through, I don't know, like 2 million rocks. Um, <laughs> with a small army of, of employees and interns. That's an awesome job description. <laughs> yeah, it really it is. Water. <laughs> yep. But at the same time, it's critically important because you don't want to like impale your vehicle yeah. with a rock that you could see if you actually looked at it, but AI didn't pick it up. Right. It, it's done. It's very, it's, I'm just so interested in this whole angle of it. Anyway, thank you for that explanation. Now my head is exploring all sorts of different <laughs> paths in my head. So my head's exploring around this idea that Nathan and I talked about last week around life elsewhere in the universe. And I'm mm. thinking about AI and the data you're collecting and the work that you're doing. And, you know, how close are we to knowing that? And yeah, but, you know, where, where maybe AI plays a role in that. I don't know. I'm curious what your current thoughts are on that topic in general. Yeah, um, I know how close we are. Um, it's hard to say. Um, we have a sample size of one right now. We, <laughs> we know there's life here on Earth. Um, uh, with like the 2020 rover in particular, we are trying to get samples back that will tell us if Mars was um, ever potentially inhabited. Because um, we've, we have some Mars meteorites, but they, we don't know where they were from. They were probably from deeper in the crust, not where mm -hmm. you'd find life. So we're hoping to get those samples back to hopefully try to answer that. Uh, and, you know, maybe there wasn't life on Mars. That's a possibility, too. It could be elsewhere. Uh, that's just going to take more time to uh, look at. I think either way, whether or not we're alone in the universe, uh, I still find it really exciting and inspiring. I, I see it sort of as two different options. Either, A, we're not alone, in which case, that's really awesome. We're part of a network of, um, of, of creatures throughout the universe, which... That's just really freaking cool. Um, or the alternative is, well, the universe is you know, only 13.7 uh, billion years old. Um, there has to be a first for everything. And it is also possible that we could be the first, in which case we would be leading the way in, um, in exploring the universe. Uh, and we are basically, we could be the standard bearers for all life to come in the universe. So either we're part of a, a really cool collective and network of, of life, or we're leading the way. Either way, I think it's just really cool and fascinating. 
I've never heard anybody pose it as what if we're the first. It's always been what if we are one of many and then that makes everybody freak out a little bit. (laughs) But I think being the first might calm some folks down, (laughs) right? Like, exciting. Yeah, I really like that. We we don't know. Um, Right. But it's it's exciting to be able to think about and I, for all we know, we we could find something in the next few years. Uh, we have, you know, there's there's plumes of, of water mm-hmm. coming out of icy oceans, uh, Enceladus, uh, Europa. Um, if, typically, when we looked at places where there's water, there could be life. We haven't seen any yet, but we have missions that are exploring that. Mm-hmm. So it could come out there. We could find evidence for life uh, on Mars too. Uh, it's it, it's a big question, and you know we're really trying to push this this frontier of understanding and it's it's something that you know that NASA's really been working hard on other space agencies but it's something that that just we as humans uh, we all have uh, a real uh, real stake in, in trying to explore our, our origins like why are we here how do we come to be here and what else is there out there now, you mentioned something earlier that I want to uh, rewind back to just a little bit. You, now, you mentioned the Ingenuity helicopter. I know nothing about this. Can you fill us in? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, Ingenuity, the, the Mars helicopter, uh, it's, a, it's a small drone. Um, it has uh, two sets of counter-rotating blades. So it looks like a helicopter, but with two, set of, two sets of blades that are stacked on top of each other. Uh, it's about um, uh, 1.8. Uh, yeah, it's about a meter, uh, 1.2 meters, uh, blade tip to blade tip. Uh, whole thing only weighs four pounds, even under Earth gravity, so it's even less on Mars. Um, but it's our first attempt to actually fly, like actually fly in the air, a spacecraft uh, on another planet uh, on Mars. Yeah, we landed with the rover. It was actually on the belly of the rover, deployed it shortly after landing. Mm-hmm. Originally, we were thinking it was only going to be like five flights. And uh, as of uh, this past Thursday, we are now at flight 63, two and a half years later. Wow. Um, we expected maybe yeah, five flights in 30 days. And uh, because of just the, the amazing engineering, design, implementation, and operation, uh, we've been able to you know, achieve much more than we expected. And, and I think anybody on the team even dreamed of. Uh, that we'd still be operating and flying and, you know, making new observations. We just scouted out a new area for the rover last week. Mm. Um, it's it's really fascinating. Uh, the, the other difference between Mars and Earth, of course, is the atmosphere. Uh, the atmosphere on Earth is about 100 times as dense as it is on Mars. So there's not a lot of air on Mars for us to really, you know, try to fly with. But because of the lower gravity and we can spin the blades faster on Mars, we're actually able to generate enough lift to fly quite stably, and even more so than we expected. Uh, we thought we thought we'd be a lot less stable in the air, mm. um, but it's actually proven a remarkable spacecraft. And yeah, we've now flown I think like 13 kilometers, uh, and we were originally planning for like 15 for, or 50 meters. Oh, that's amazing! That is amazing. We've just yeah blown away all expectations, yeah. and I I think that that helicopters like Ingenuity are going to be sort of another way of exploring in the future. Um, originally, when we first landed on Mars, we had landers. And then we yeah. had um, Pathfinder and the Sojourner rover. And that sort of, that was a groundbreaking moment. It's like, hey, now we're going to do rovers. We're going to move around on Mars. 
now we can fly around. We don't have to be blocked by terrain that is otherwise really challenging. We just fly straight over it. <laughs> so yeah. it's, uh, I, I really think that helicopters are going to be an incredibly useful and an able tool for future exploration on Mars and elsewhere. I know Dragonfly is also um, planning to go to, uh, to the moon Titan as well to explore, uh, to explore its geology. Uh, that's a little bit different because, you know, much colder outer solar system, also going to need a lot of AI and autonomy because it's really far away, but it's enabling us to travel places that we never could before. Yeah, oh yeah, we are constantly expanding our capabilities. Mm -hmm. um, I, even just within the past six months, we've doubled our flight speed. We've doubled our maximum altitude. Uh, we're still trying to find the boundaries of what we can actually do. And at this point, the sky is still not really a limit. Love it. Love it. Yes. Nathan, uh, we have many undergraduates who listen to this podcast, and some of them might be reaching out to you after they hear this and want to learn more. Um, and as you, Because as you re might remember, there are many students here who dream of doing this type of work for their career. And so we can give them something more in terms of insight or advice. What do you wish you knew when you were a sophomore? Well, in terms of like getting involved in um, in a lot of th this sort of work or um, or whatnot, uh, if you can get involved in undergraduate research, definitely do that. Uh, I started actually as a freshman uh, at Cornell. I was fortunate enough to be able to start working doing undergraduate research from then. Did that for Earth, then on the Moon, and then that can, that sort of just led the way. Uh, through that, I was able to build a network, and yeah, network building. I, I know we often hear about that as like you got a network, network, network. It is actually really important, and that's um, both for you know, getting jobs, but also just opening up all sorts of opportunities. And even when you're not just networking and um, you're just applying for things, just keep applying for stuff. Um, I know personally I've, I've fought with imposter syndrome myself quite a bit, um, but at the same time, try. Um, like you, you know what you can do. You know that you will also learn as you're doing more things. And so as you continue your, your growth as an engineer or scientist or whatever, keep learning, keep expanding, and understand that you're going to do that. So don't sell yourself too short. Um, the other thing I'll mention is that, at least for your interest in sort of my kind of work, um, JPL and NASA, we have a bunch of internships over summers that are paid, um, uh, as well as like postdocs and whatnot. Uh, so if you're interested in that, apply. I, I personally take on like three to five interns every summer um, and we work on stuff. Some of it's looking at rocks. Some of it is uh, planning out, like literally just planning out future landing sites on Mars. Um, but there's a wide range of things, a lot more engineering based, mechanical engineering, electrical uh, software engineering. There's a lot of that as well. So if you're interested, jump on it. Uh, totally apply for it, all, all the opportunities that you see. And then you had mentioned earlier something about reading and staying up on current information. Where do you go to stay up on current information in your work? So at least for me, for at least more the science side of things, um, I, I often read journal articles. Um, but if you can go to any of the, sort of the professional meetings, uh, those are, I think, some of the best places, not just to network, but just to make sure that you're at the very forefront of, of whatever discipline you're looking at. So I know like IEEE is one that a lot of my engineering colleagues will go to. 
Uh, for planetary science, uh, I go to the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference, uh, which is held every spring. Um, so there you're able to both update yourself on what is the current understanding at the very bleeding edge, as well as you know actually being able to go out and meet people and make connections and finish to make opportunities to go and do some of this work yourself. Yeah. I think that that's really great. Um, I, I love going to conferences because you're right, because people are telling you, I did this thing last week and there's not that delay of, you know, the publishing time. And so they can be really, really important moments for you to just like know the brand new, newest thing. Yeah. <laughs> because and what people are thinking about for yes. like the next six months or so, like, Hey, I had this idea yeah. and trying to still figure things out, but maybe we should work on this together. Yeah. The networking thing is, is so huge. And I was listening to Krista talking about networking just last week with students looking for jobs and everything. And so that really struck home with me. I don't think I quite emphasize that part of it enough to my students. And so the two of you have re-energized that for me. Yeah. It's something that I, I definitely like, I, I'd heard that back when I was an undergrad and it's like, yeah, I, I accept that, that that's probably helpful. And in hindsight, looking back, it's like, okay, that was more helpful than I was expecting it to be. Um, so yeah, I definitely, definitely go for it. Uh, at least, you know, within your, your capabilities, you don't want to work yourself into the ground. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the other thing that, you know, as a, I guess as a sophomore, as you asked, uh, I wish I had, I had known is uh, it, it's good to really focus on your work, to do a really good job at it, but you also want to balance work and life. You don't want to burn yourself out, which I have seen and experienced a lot of. Um, you, you need to find that that balance as best as it suits you. So keep pushing forward, but also don't work yourself into the ground. Well, we were going to ask this question in just a minute, but what do you do to maintain your work-life balance? What do you do for fun or to recharge? Um, so I, my, my favorite hobby is bird watching. Um, ah. I, I go out just, you know, watch birds, see whatever I find. It's also sort of a sense of discovery because you don't know what birds you're going to see when you go somewhere. Um, could be some rare thing that shows up and you just stumble upon it and that's cool. And there's all sorts of different neat ones. Um, but I've been, I've been bird watching since, oh, I was a little kid. Um, uh, even when I was at Cornell, I was involved in the, uh, in the Cornell Raptor program, mm -hmm. uh, which I, I'm pretty sure is still running there. And, uh, we took care of, I don't know, was like 40 different birds of prey, yeah. uh, like working with them in person, uh, feeding them every day. Um, bringing them on public outreach and education programs and just being able to see and work with them up close was, it was just so wonderful. Um, I don't have the time right now to, to commit to that level of like uh, of what I did back at Cornell because I was doing it like a couple hours every single day because I had a bird that I was working directly with. Mm. Um, but it's like, don't have the time to do that right now, especially you know, with operations and especially when we were on Mars time, we weren't even on like an Earth day time schedule. But um, but back then that was, it was so wonderful to be involved in that. And I still love just going out, just hiking and seeing what birds I can. I don't even know where to begin with the questions, but I'm going to start with, can you tell us about Mars time? <laughs> we both uh, looked yes. at each other and went, Mars time, when you said yeah. that. <laughs> um, so Mars time is fun. Um, typically we only do that during... Um, we only like work to that during the early part of missions when it's really critical. We've just landed and are trying to, you know, get the ball rolling and we're a little bit nervous that, you know, things might break or not work as expected because we don't have the, the baseline experience where things have actually been working on the surface. So the general crux is that Mars days 
um, or sols as we call them, they're a little bit longer than here on Earth. It's about 40 minutes longer uh, per day, so 24 hours, 40 minutes. Um, so sometimes, uh, depending on when we get rover data back, usually send a plan up, the rover does what it does for the day, sends data back. And then we look at it, we plan the next day of activities. Um, so some days we'll start going in at work at like, you know, 8 a.m., 9 a.m., 10 a.m. It progresses every single day uh, just because Mars Day is slowly moving out of sync. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Eventually, it gets to the point where it's not 8 or 9 or 10 a.m., it starts moving up in the afternoon and the evening and overnight. And um, in those critical stages of the mission, you want to make sure that everything is working as you're expecting it to. And so we were working at all hours uh, on this ever-shifting uh, cadence of, of uh, work shifts. And as a result, um, yeah, it, it gets quite challenging. Uh, the human body normally has a 24-hour circadian rhythm and both physically and psychologically, trying to break that is, it, it's, it's difficult to say the least. Um, I, I handle it relatively well because I was able to, granted we also landed during the pandemic, so I wasn't able to go over any places anyways, but uh, I tried to control my surroundings and basically trick my body into accepting a Mars-like circadian rhythm of a longer day. So I had like blackout curtains, I had one of those like daytime, um, uh, daytime wave-like lights, and I would use that to literally create my own day-night cycle just within my apartment, and you know, make sure that I had to like schedule out when I would eat because I would, my body didn't know what time it was, so we would right. otherwise forget to eat, which is not a good thing. <laughs> so I had to like intentionally go ahead and like plan out, okay, from this time I'm going to be eating, uh, like set aside specific times, a lot of extra cushion, make sure I got enough sleep at night uh, because it's. Even still, it was like operating under months of jet lag continuously. Yeah, right. I mean, it's something, it's a nuance of your field that no one else thinks of or knows of, mm -hmm. right? M many people are working across the globe, and yet you know what that rhythm is to work with people in any given, you know, continent or time zone. Wow. It reminds me of what people have to do when they live very far north, you know, yes. and they have the four month mm -hmm. of all sun and then the, yeah. what, three and a half months of total darkness. And they have to do all of these same sorts of things to keep their bodies healthy and their minds on top of things. Yeah, it is. It is challenging. But um, at the same time, it's an opportunity. So I I still jumped for it. Yeah. Um, because we were on Mars. It's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> You're on Mars. <laughs> That's awesome. It, it, it is really challenging, though. And um, I thankfully I didn't have any uh, any special like, like familial obligations. I didn't have to like drive kids to uh, to school right. or anything. And uh, a lot of my other colleagues and coworkers, they did. Yeah. So I, I was a little bit more fortunate in that I didn't have a lot of these external pressures. I could isolate myself. But it was a tremendous... Um, uh, tremendous lift by the by the whole team individually, personally, as well as all their families and, and friends to really support all of us as we were trying to literally push our our bodies and minds to the max as we mm -hmm. were, you know, landing and operating a new spacecraft. Wow! I so appreciate that you extended your thanks out to the families and the support groups of the yes. people doing this because that's something that often doesn't often get mentioned is like that whole it takes a village. A village, um, I, the, the entire U.S., uh, yeah. like every taxpayer, I, mm -hmm. those taxpayer money, we're 
we're trying to make the best use of it that we possibly can. Um, and yeah, the endeavors that we're going after, like trying to understand, is there life out there? Where are we from? Like, were other planets similar to Earth back in, you know, billions of years ago uh, or potentially similar in some ways today? Those are human endeavors. We're, the work I do, a lot of it is operating literally in a vacuum of space, <laughs> but we don't operate in a vacuum in our communities. We are a, you know, we are a community and that support is fundamental to our success. Love well, that. new motto for NASA right there. <laughs> or JPL. That is, uh, it, it's a wonderful sentiment, right? And I think that, that it needs to be just more expressed uh, out there. So I'm glad that you were able to articulate that so beautifully. I'm going to make you shift gears. One last question. Alrighty. If you weren't doing this work, what would you be doing? Oh, it's a tough challenge uh, of a question to uh, ask. Like, th this is the dream job that I had, <laughs> like, since I was a kid. I mean, it's really, you know, planning out where we're going um, on different planets. Um, I, I, I've always had much more of a science interest and focus, so I would probably, if I wasn't doing this, I'd do something like like ornithology, studying birds on uh, a research setting. Um, or if I was still able to do geology, depending on how you want to phrase the question, I could be doing like some geology on Earth, looking at maybe remote sensing images, uh, doing um, some sort of other tectonic studies, which is what I started doing when I was at Cornell. Um, alternatively, I could potentially have gone in a more like IT and computer science direction. I still apply a lot of those skills to my current work. I still do a fair bit of programming because, uh, well, we got to program things and send them to the rover. Um, but uh, yeah, if, if I wasn't doing this specific work, I'd probably be, you know, expanding out into that because programming, especially these days, is becoming... Uh, so useful in so many fields, yeah. uh, especially now with AI coming up and so much data available now, it's becoming harder and harder to physically crunch a lot of that data yourself and you need programming skills to do that. Mm. So Thank you. those are probably the different avenues I would have taken if, if not for this. But I would, I'm just incredibly fortunate that I, I was able to pursue this career path. That's amazing. Are there any last words of wisdom that you want to share with us? <laughs> I, I would say I, it, it's, it's sort of fluffy and, and perhaps a little bit idealistic, but the sky is no longer a limit. Um, <laughs> I, th there is limitations to what we can do, but, but by working together, trying to understand broader context, uh, both of your own work, of the work of those around you, of other people, um, Having that, that context, being able to communicate across barriers is, I think, really critical no matter what field you're in, what work you do, uh, because that's how you both connect uh, personally and externally, but also how you're able to make the biggest and best contributions to everybody's lives. So I will leave it at that. Nathan, it's been such a joy to talk to you today. Thank you for all of your time. Oh, my pleasure. And I'll also add on, um, I don't personally have public social media, but um, but NASA, JPL, uh, we have public social media for, for those. If you want to hear the latest of what's actually going on with the rover or other missions or plans for the future, um, most of the major platforms, uh, we have accounts on those. So feel free to follow along on those as well. Yeah, the pictures are fantastic. 
thank you for that recommendation. Yep, it is out of this world. It is. <laughs> thank you so much. Until next time. Thank you for listening. If you are enjoying these conversations, please follow, rate, and review on your favorite platform. Join us for the next episode where we will be celebrating excellence and innovation among engineers whose impact contributes to a healthier, more equitable, and more sustainable world.